So we think of ourselves as a rule of law state, but I think it's important to say that the rule of law is not just an automatic feature of any society and simply reporting it on a piece of paper doesn't guarantee very much. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast is doctoral student and former Runnymede National Director, Mark Mancini. Mark is currently pursuing his PhD at the University of British Columbia on a Bombardier Canada Graduate Scholarship, where his research focuses on the rule of law in correctional institutes. Today, we're discussing the state of the rule of law in Canada and what the Freedom Convoy and subsequent invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act reveals about Canada's legal culture. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio, Mark. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. You're on the the other side of the uh, microphone <laughs> this time. Uh, former host, now back as a guest. So we're incredibly excited to to have you back on and to talk about some of the work that you've been doing and and some of the commentary that you've been writing recently. But before we dive into what we're specifically going to be talking about today, which is the state of the rule of law in Canada and what the uh, the convoy and the protests and occupations mm. and all of this have revealed about the state of the rule of law in Canada. Why don't you tell us a bit about what you've been up to uh, since um, since passing the baton off to me and, and moving on and starting your doctorate? Well, yeah, uh, great, Chris. And thanks again for having me back here. It's uh, always uh, it's great to be on the podcast again, even on this side. Uh, so just in terms of what I've been doing, I'm uh, now in the midst of my uh, PhD at uh, at University of British Columbia, uh, so I've just started in September, just uh, in the second semester of it now, and it's a three four more year program, and I'm studying uh, the law of judicial review and the rule of law, particularly as it applies in uh, to Correctional Services Canada. Uh, so I'm just studying. Uh, the standard of review when uh, correctional services makes constitutional decisions. I'm studying the internal workings of correctional services Canada in relation to the principle of the rule of law. And all these things are uh, designed to kind of bring administrative law and uh, the law governing the carceral state and criminal law in conversation with one another. So very general right now, because I am just in the second semester, but that's what I'm, that's part of what I've uh, been working on these days. That sounds excellent. Like it's going to be a, a fascinating dissertation when it's done. Mm-hmm. And obviously in a lot of ways, y- you're, you're not covering, um, th- this isn't new ground for you. This really flows out of the previous research that you, uh, you did when you were working on your LLM uh, mm-hmm. in Chicago, and then the research that you uh, undertook while you were the national director of Runnymede. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very much continuing in line, um, in line with my, with my past interest in administrative law and the law of judicial review. But I think, one addition that I'm uh, attempting to bring here, and I, I'm building off a lot of work by other scholars uh, like Lisa Kerr, like my um, supervisor, Deborah Parks. But um, what I'm trying to do is show the relevance of administrative law and, and the rule and the rule of law and legality in places where we may not expect it and where it's mm-hmm. often been lacking. Uh, and that's, I think, an important uh, direction for administrative law to start uh, thinking about in terms of what do we what, what do we conceive of as the administrative state and how do we subject it to uh, the requirements of the law even in areas where it's where in the past it's never really found a home like in uh, prison so it's a it's a really complex issue but that's what makes it exciting to study 
Well, I think that's a good segue into what we wanted to talk about today, which is a an area um, uh, of public life where we don't always think about the rule of law, and thankfully, where we haven't had to think about it uh, too often, which is with regard to public demonstrations and protests and the like. But these last few weeks have really brought this issue to the fore in a way uh, that we're being forced to contend with. You know, what does the rule of law mean in this yeah. kind of context? So. You've written a few editorials about the rule of law and about these recent protests and occupations. We saw them across Canada at various borders, and uh, more recently, it was in Ottawa. And for those uh, listening, we're recording this the afternoon of Tuesday, February the 22nd. Uh, so, you know, the situation may well change by the time uh, this is actually uh, published online. And only this past weekend were the occupations in Ottawa um, cleared at, and the streets kind of returned to a state of order. Um, But one of the concerns, Mark, that you've expressed in these editorials that you've written is that the rule of law has been eroded these past few weeks. Can you explain why? Yeah, I think this, I mean, it's a really tough question. I think it's one that we're going to be wrestling with uh, for for a long time and that I hope that we're wrestling with because what I think uh, this revealed are some really disturbing cracks in the way we uh, conceive of and think about the rule of law in Canada. I think the best place to start is with uh, what Canada tells itself about the rule of law. We, I think it's pretty common for people to think of Canada as a rule of law state. Uh, it says so in our, uh, it says so in our, uh, the preamble to our constitution, to the charter. Uh, we, the Supreme court has often, as often, you know, ex- explicated the requirements of the rule of law uh, and the force of the unwritten principle of the rule of law. So we think of ourselves as a rule of law state, but I think it's important to say that the rule of law, it's not just an automatic feature of any society and Mm. simply recording it on a piece of paper doesn't guarantee very much. What's required is a society that uh, the leadership of the society, the people in the society, the state agents of of the state uh, apparatus are required to inculcate and respect the rule of law. And so I think what we've seen with the trucker thing is uh, the trucker convoy is just a, a bit of a erosion of this idea of uh, being bound by the rule of law and being committed to it on a personal level. And so I mm-hmm. think the, you know, and what we may get into this, but I think the best example of this is just what we saw with the police in Ottawa over the course of uh, the occupation uh, of the downtown core, the, inability or unwillingness to enforce the normal law to uh, be aware and and to protect the city when they knew that uh, the convoy was coming in. These are things that uh, demonstrate that the police were perhaps picking and choosing winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really, that is a disturbing rule of law problem. Uh, And it goes back to my point that in order for the rule of law state to exist, we need to have the people that are subject to it really taking it to heart. And to the extent that that didn't happen here, I think it raises a, uh, an issue for us. And, and we'll get into that other side of the equation a little bit later on, and we'll talk about state accountability and the invocation of the Emergencies Act. But let, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea about the rule of law as being something that also applies on a societal level and that mm-hmm. impacts uh, our individual actions. And in a piece that you wrote for The Line, you wrote that, quote, the rule of law is not just law and order. It's an ideal. In the ideal situation, a society governed by the rule of law controls what state actors do, subjecting them to predetermined rules and standards, end quote. 
But you also wrote that, quote, while the rule of law has a special application of restricting state power, it also provides a set of rules or guidelines for how we should live in relation to one another, end quote. So I think this is really kind of what you're getting at here is that the rule of law is uh, it's not just about the circumscribing of state authority, but it it actually has something to say about what our society uh, looks like in terms of the way um, our our laws are are drafted and our political systems are set up. So I'm wondering if you can expand on this a little bit more. Yeah, this is very, very important because we often hear the rule of law uh, caricatured or straw manned as um, just the rule of rule of the of the strong man or Mm -hmm the rule of the police or mm-hmm. law and order. And to a certain extent, I mean, these aspects of the rule of law are important. We know that the Supreme Court um, said in, in the Manitoba language reference, well, in order for to, to call ourselves a rule of law society, we need laws. We need a mm-hmm. positive order of laws. And so that means that we're going to need to have people enforcing these laws. So there are elements of, uh, of enforcing law and these sorts of things that go into the rule of law, but it's certain that is not uh, the totality of it. And it's, it's not a sufficient condition for a rule of law state to exist because we could think of all sorts of States that um, establish law and order, but which we would not call rule of law States. Right. Instead, what I think the rule of law, um, it, 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 it operates in, in, I think in two separate ways here. So um, while it prescribes enforcement of laws and it prescribes the existence of laws, it also prescribes a, a system of constraints on those on those uh, on the application of those laws. So what we have we have a constitution um, that uh, takes priority over positive law and over state action under that positive law. Statutes delegating power to uh, people to enforce the law are often cabined. Uh, it's not a general power. There are things that restrict the powers of police and others in the system. So that's one way the rule of law works. But then in another way, and this is what I think your question is getting at, there's a social element to it. Mm -hmm. And the social element um, has to do with how you and I and me and others on the street deal with one another. We know that in in this rule, particular rule of law state, we all have constitutional rights. We all... um, have a respect. We should have a basic respect for the, the exercise of those rights, even when they lead to offense, even when um, they lead to disturbance. Um, but it's a two-way street. And so in the exercise of certain rights, I also have to respect the fact that others uh, may think differently than me or may hold different positions than me. This kind of ethic is something, uh, again, that's not automatic. It's not something that we're born with. It's something that human beings have to develop in the course of living in a society that calls itself a rule of law society. And um, there are lots of examples of what happened in Ottawa that shows us what happens when this falls apart, when this sort of social consensus about respecting uh, the limits on the exercise of rights and these sorts of things, uh, what happens when that breaks down? And that I think is really going to be part of the legacy of what we saw in Ottawa. And and I think in a lot of ways, you know, just listening and and taking in what you're saying, what you're getting at is this idea of um, not just, you know, uh, what the Constitution says, but also the culture that surrounds our Constitution and that surrounds our, our legal system. And I think in Canada, perhaps part of the reason why the last few weeks have been so um, uh, 
you know, we, we seemed ill prepared to respond to what happened is because we've been fortunate enough to live in a country where often you don't see um, this sort of societal break from the rule of law, perhaps in the ways that we have. And, and certainly there are like examples of it throughout history and even in, in recent years with concerns over uh, protests and blockades of, of critical infrastructure and and uh, and rail lines and the like. And, and that's all an important conversation that needs to be had. But on the whole, um, Canadians seem to have historically been uh, to, to have perhaps understood um, what that the, the rule of law cuts both ways in this way and that it imposes expectations uh, on them as well. So it, it's hard not to wonder as we kind of look forward, are we going to see a new norm here where, uh, where, where the societal aspects of the rule of law perhaps need to be uh, re-emphasized? Yes, I, I think so. And, um, but I think it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, it's a tough question because the the problem is, and you, you hear this, you know, I think others have made the point that I'm making here. Others have made the point that it's not just about the rules on paper, although those rules are important. It's about mm-hmm. societal ethic. But um, the problem that we have, it, the kind of conundrum that we're in is that we live in a society in Canada that's incredibly pluralistic mm-hmm. and, and incredibly diverse. And a rule of law state doesn't require everyone to agree on every matter of substance. That's the, that's the feature of it, that it allows substantial disagreement on questions of important value uh, between people in a given society. Mm-hmm. But what it does require is at least a sense of respect um, of the exercise of others' mm-hmm. rights and the exercise of, of, of others' uh, autonomy and personal uh, well-being. And it also requires a forbearance to uh to forbear from interfering with others rights and to say even to proudly say i don't respect i don't agree with what you're saying but i respect your right to say it these sorts of things are part of living in a society where there's going to be vast differences among people on questions of value without that kind of that thin baseline agreement um there's there's very little binding us together anymore and that i think is something um, over time that Canadians and our leaders are going to have to really look at and think about how best to repair these uh, these tears in our social fabric. And, and we could go back into thinking how this came to be, but I think the Freedom Convoy, what it, um, what it put out to us in very, it was very stark effect is just how far down the line we've gone and uh, how much work we really do have in front of us to uh, create the conditions for the rule of law to flourish. This reminds me of something that Justice David Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeals said a few years ago at Runnymede's uh, Law and Freedom Conference. And essentially, I think he was in part getting saying what you're getting at here, that the best guarantee of democracy isn't the legislature, it's not the judiciary, but what he said was, quote, it's a well-informed, active populace that's prepared to defend their fundamental values, end quote. And so it's this idea that you're you're discussing here that uh, that rights and freedoms require not just a guarantee on a piece of paper and, and understood in this um, in, a, in sort of a technical uh, negative sense, but we have to think of the culture that surrounds them and that uh, when those rights and freedoms um, are eroded, it, it often comes um, it, it often emerges from a societal level because we don't see those rights and freedoms. Um, being respected uh, by other citizens to the extent that they ought to. And I think if we 
look back the past few years at some of the more uh, controversial cases that have gone before the Supreme Court that have supposedly uh, involved uh, conflicts between rights and freedoms, we've seen that on display. Yes. Uh, again, it's not the, it's not this, the Freedom Convoy isn't the, uh, the word to say it, I think, is that it's not uh, the first of these instances that yes. we've seen. And it's not going to be, I, I really, unfortunately, believe it's not going to be the last either. When these things don't just come out of nowhere. And I think uh, there's a lot of different causes of, mm-hmm. of this that we could speak of it in rule of law terms. Um, we, I don't think we can ignore the, the political aspects of it, uh, of the, the, this, um, the, the sort of populism that is motivating this. And the way, as I mentioned in one of my articles, the way that uh, some politicians are trading off on the rule of law to support this populist movement um lots of things are going into this and it's going to be incumbent on us to untangle all this and think about how it is that we can have a society where uh we have the we have the protection and exercise of freedoms but uh those freedoms are exercised with a bit of responsibility about uh the rights and interests of others it's a incredibly difficult problem that i think we've taken for granted because we've never had to really face it yet uh as in in the 21st century and, and I think this comes back to your point about uh, living in a pluralistic society. And, and in many ways, we're no longer just a pluralistic society, which we have been for many, many decades. We're now becoming a fractured society. And so there's uh, a sense in which there the rule of law uh, becomes uh, even more important in those situations because it's what helps uh, ensure that, quite simply, that we have peace, order, and good governance, uh, to use the language of the 1867 Act, uh, in the midst of that pluralism, and even in the midst of those times when we're we're seeing fracturing along societal lines. And so I think this is a good segue into what I wanted to kind of quickly discuss next, which is this, you know, you alluded to some of the criticisms that we see levied against the rule of law. And one of the ones that we've frequently seen is this idea that uh, the neutral application of predetermined rules and standards cannot itself bring about a just or, 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 or good society. But if I understand what you're saying correctly, what you're arguing here is that the rule of law, when it's actually followed, can itself result in substantive goods that um, perhaps we need to move beyond this, this dichotomy between um, proceduralism and substantivism and, and to recognize that even following the procedures can bring about substantive goods. Would you agree with that? Yeah, this is a very uh, important question and one I spent a lot of time thinking about. So I have a number of things to say about this problem. And the the Freedom Convoy saga brings this into, I think, brings this to the forefront. But this is something that has really kind of gone back and forth in the scholarship on the rule of law for many, many years now. So it's not new. So the first thing I think I'd like to say is that the casting of the rule of law as neutral, as a principle itself, seems to me to miss the point. And that's because, uh, as, I, as I kind of, I think, pointed out in one of my pieces, it isn't natural or automatic for the rule of law to exist. It's not something that uh, we're born into and, uh, and have as a birthright. So it's not a matter of it being neutral or part of the ether or uh, or even, let's put it this way, a feature of natural law. 
It's nothing like that. In fact, it's a human achievement. And so, and it, and I would say it's radical because for most of human history, as I can see it, the rule of law as we know it right now, or even as it's theorized um, by modern 20th and 21st century scholars, is not something that has ever ex- that, that always existed. It's not something that's always existed. So it's a deliberate choice to live in a rule of law society. It's a deliberate choice of all of us on an individual level, but it's also a choice of uh, of our leaders to abide by the laws that that uh, apply to them. And this nexus between uh, protections, legal protections, and the willingness to be bound by those protections, that's very, that's relatively new in human history. So mm. again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it radical. <laughs> the second thing I think we have to, or I wouldn't call it neutral, rather, the rule of law, yeah. I would call it yeah. radical rather than neutral. I think the second thing to say about, uh, about being a, a person who believes in the rule of law is that um, we, we can't expect the rule of law to do everything. And this is something that uh, people, Joseph Raz said in, in 1979 in his famous paper. And I think this still rings true today. The rule of law, it's not an all-purpose instrument. Mm-hmm. We can think of societies that may have a version of the rule of law, but um, lack other things, lack uh, equality, rights, mm-hmm. lack uh, so, you know, a social welfare state. These are things that uh, may support the, uh, a rule of law state, but aren't mandated by it necessarily on some accounts of the rule of law. And so I think there is some humility to be had here in recognizing the limits of what the rule of law can accomplish, mm-hmm. uh, but also recognizing that it's a deliberate choice and an important one. And that leads to my third point, which is that um, I would say the people, the folks that are that argue that, well, the rule of law is not uh, – doesn't guarantee justice. And I, I, as I've said, I agree with them. Mm-hmm. But what I would instead say is that the rule of law is a necessary but not sufficient condition for justice generally conceived. And so I'm thinking of, of uh, a, a, let's think of a few examples, perhaps. So um, having a, uh, having a social welfare state, for example, may be a good that is, um, that isn't mandated by the rule of law. But uh, you can really only establish a state like that, a workable state, uh, a, a workable social welfare state, subject to certain constraints and uh, certain uh, and people to implement it. And those people that implement that state have to be subject uh, to the laws. We might want them to be subject to the laws to ensure the fair distribution of resources and assets, these sorts of uh, fairness considerations. So. The rule of law sets up a framework for us to accomplish many other substantive goods. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily guarantee them. Uh, and But we still require the rule of law for these substantive goods, even mm-hmm. if it is a procedural principle, even a radical procedural principle about how we conceive and limit of state power. But, you know, there's so much more I could say about that. It's just uh, I think – what has happened in the last number of years, and this has happened on uh, with scholars on the right and on the left, it, there's been a casting of the rule of law as uh, as either a feature of repression, a, a function of repression, or um, a neutral idea that doesn't do anything. And I think both of these conceptions are mistaken. Both of them are mistake the uh, the role of the rule of law in setting up a framework, a necessary framework for a society to operate. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, both of them, in a way, give too much power to the rule of law. To It's not an all-purpose instrument for everything, but rather just a, a necessary condition 
for us to achieve other th- important things that we may want in our society. Mm-hmm. That's that's an interesting way of of putting it. The necessary but not uh, sufficient. And I was actually thinking of that that exact uh, framework as you were discussing. So it's um it, it's it's a really interesting point and and one that no doubt uh, you're going to you know I would hope to see you explore uh, in further blog posts and, and papers. Mm-hmm. Um, with the time that we have left, I want to switch gears a little bit because you know we've been talking about the ways in which the rule of law uh, for those who have been listening have focused on. Uh, the societal implications and the responsibilities and duties that the rule of law imposes on individuals. But now I want to shift gears and consider um, what may be described as the more kind of traditional focus of the rule of law, which is the constraints that it places on state authority and state mm-hmm. power. And yeah. obviously, when we look at the the convoy and the way in which it ultimately evolved into some form of an occupation, particularly in downtown Ottawa. Uh, this is now where uh, this this story takes on a bit of um, uh, a new flavor because uh, just over a week ago, we had the federal government announce that it was going to be invoking uh, the Emergencies Act, the Federal Emergencies Act, to deal with uh, the situation in downtown Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was uh, the first time that the, the Modern Emergencies Act uh, has been invoked. Its its predecessor, uh, the War Measures Act, was obviously very infamously uh, invoked during the October crisis in 1970 uh, by the current prime minister's uh, father. And just last night, from when we're recording this podcast now, the House of Commons voted uh, 185 to 151 to authorize the emergency measures that the federal government is seeking to avail itself of under the Emergencies Act. So it was a tight vote. Uh, You had the Liberals uh, and the NDP voting in favor, and then the Conservatives and Bloc Québécois voting against it. So I want to, I guess, kind of take a step back now and consider how the rule of law cuts both ways and gauge your response to the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act, because you've written about this as well. Uh, You had a piece uh, this week in the line, and you were also part of uh, a letter that was also featured in the line with with other uh, scholars such as uh, Jeff Siglet, Nasher Honigman, and, and Dwight Newman. So can you give us your sense of whether or not the the invocation of the Emergencies Act is is helping the situation, is, is it justified? What's your take? Yeah, this is, well, this is of course the million dollar question and the question of the day. But I think it's uh, just uh, two things to say. I think before I address that question, the first is that um, while I've talked about the importance of the social aspects of the rule of law, uh, again, I would say that uh, the the social aspects of the rule of law can't really exist without these formal aspects as well. And this is where I think um, thick scholars of the rule of law uh, perhaps go wrong is that while they say that, uh, you know, they, they talk about how the rule of law has to encompass a certain, and we think of um, think of people like Tom Bingham who, who wrote his text on the rule of law, thick conceptions of the rule of law can be justifiable in certain contexts, but we have to still remember to give emphasis and force to those formal requirements because they spell out the precise details of the legal authority that we've granted to people, to mm-hmm. agents of the government, to do some potentially very repressive things. And so the formal requirements are really, really important in fleshing them out in terms of the doctrine and the text. These are all still things that really do matter. And that's one just one thing I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. So on the uh, – and then the second thing I wanted to mention is that um, – 
the Emergencies Act and the question of whether or not it's justified or not, I think has to be seen in the larger context of what we've seen over the last, uh, in the last three weeks or so. And uh, what that is, and I think what I, and the point I made in my pieces is that because of the cascading failures of the rule of law, because of the Ottawa police's inability to control the situation or their choice not to, um, we get into a situation where uh, the stakes are much higher and people now feel, uh, but politicians and others feel perfectly justified and entitled to advocate for more repressive measures like an emergencies act type of situation. Mm-hmm. Now that's different from whether or not it's justified or not, which I'll get to in a second, but it's yep. just the fact, it's just the point here is that uh, one failure of the rule of law opens the conditions for others mm-hmm. to begin to appear and mm-hmm. once those appear, the, the failures have a tendency to cascade and to get greater and greater. And so that's part of it in the rule of law letter and the advocates, of the rule of law letter that I co-signed um, along with a few others. Uh, that's one of the lines that we adopted was one rule of law failure does not beget another because mm-hmm. at some point we have to make the decision to stop and to evaluate what the problems are and to improve for next time rather than attempting now to turn back the clock which is what the Emergencies Act is, turn back the clock from uh, when the Ottawa police decided to let X number of trucks into the downtown core. So mm-hmm. that's uh, that's the context. Now, in terms of the – and so that kind of leads you into where the Emergencies Act situation, uh, where there's a number of ways to determine whether or not this is uh, justified or not. And other people will disagree on the on the legalities of it, whether the statutory conditions are met. Um, but that's our first thing is that, in my view, I just don't believe the statutory conditions are met. Uh, there are, are many ways that this is uh, the case. We outline them in our in our letter. Uh, one of them is is uh, the scope of the emer- the term emergency and how that may not exactly fit the situation that we're in now. Um, so I could talk about those sorts of legal requirements that we don't feel are met. But there's a problem here of precedent, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem here is that, again, we because the door was open to the to the discussion and um, the use of the Emergencies Act, we now have a culture where this might be or at least have a precedent where this might be something that's desirable or in the public conversation. And mm-hmm. where we don't have this, those social conditions for the rule of law to exist, we should really worry about the use of Emergency Act and, and this sort of this kind of legislation to be used against political opponents uh, and causes that politicians may not like in the future as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the part I mostly worry about is the the precedent and um, what it what it says about the powers our government can have to use the law instrumentally uh, against their political opponents in the future. Now, I do think one just one more thing to say yeah. is that the situation in Ottawa uh, is, was very bad and in some ways still is. People mm-hmm. need to understand that uh, what, I really do believe the people that are advocating for the Emergencies Act here and, and maybe perhaps even some of the politicians who voted for it are doing so in good faith because they really believe and they, they have a, the facts to back them up to a certain extent that the situation in Ottawa was so drastic and uh, required the use of the Emergencies Act to, to, to fix it. I'm alive to this. Um, I, I just think on a few fronts, it doesn't quite add up. And yeah. one is that on uh, you know, the police have always had the resources to deal with this problem. Mm-hmm. The Emergencies Act doesn't, as far as I know, meaningfully add, um, add resources uh, that, that would have allowed the police to clear the area. What, what I think, I think the question was more about will. 
the will of the police to clear it, not a matter of legal or logistical resources. And at any rate, the the situation in Ottawa, um, when, when the vote came up last night in the House to affirm the declaration, the situation in Ottawa was under control. And at mm-hmm. that point, it might have been appropriate for Parliament to say, we no longer need this declaration and we, we won't vote to affirm it. So mm-hmm. a lot of issues, a lot of issues there. But um, again, I, I'm, I'm opposed to the use of the Emergencies Act here. Uh, but I do think that we have a rule of law problem that far exceeds the scope of that act or any consequences that it'll have here. Well, like as you've been speaking, I, I can think of two potential unintended consequences. You know, when you were talking about the the precedent that it was set, I think those who are advocating for its invocation would perhaps do well to stop and think about uh, the ways in which this could be replicated again in the future. So, you know, earlier on, we were discussing over the last few years, we've started to see more of these sort of uh, protests and and blockades and occupations along points of critical infrastructure. So I, I think a good question to ask ourselves, if our inclination is toward invoking the Emergencies Act is to say, well, if this was going to be invoked, uh, for example, uh, to shut down uh, a railway blockade, uh, you know, protesting uh, um, oil and gas or pipelines and the like, w- would we be comfortable um, doing that? And and to see such extraordinary powers being used uh, to respond to some of those situations. But but then on the flip side, I, I, I can see a, a different kind of precedent being set here, where, again, thinking about the culture around the rule of law, where law enforcement is only prepared to act when they've been given extraordinary powers um, right. and where, and where yeah. they've been given the assurance of that, um, that creates this, you know, a potentially uh, heightened, um, you know, situation where states of emergency just become the norm. Uh, and, and that itself, you know, ultimately results in, in the executive being given more power of the leg- legislature and all of these things. So I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on that. Yeah, uh, these are the, the, the it pulls in two directions. Uh, we could have on one hand a, a police force that is so worried about acting without ex, without certain legal authorities. We saw this with the injunctions, um, going to court to get an injunction to enforce the law. This isn't something uh, that we're used to seeing or that we should see, uh, because the police have the power to enforce the law without an injunction or without the Emergencies Act. And that, that I mean, this situation demonstrates how that's the case. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one particular issue that we have. Another particular issue is the police uh, picking and choosing which protests to uh, to enforce the law more stringently at. I think this is a, you know, we compare the G20 mm-hmm. uh, situation or the, it was a G20 in um, 2010 yep. to the, uh, the, the, this particular protest. And we see two different policing tactics here, completely different. Mm-hmm. and completely inconsistent. And then, of course, there's the problem of what to do uh, when there are protests that escalate to blockades and that are blocking critical infrastructure and that are uh, like borders and rails and these sorts of things. So we have three separate issues here related, but separate rule of law problems. And they're each going to require different solutions, I think. Mm-hmm. For the the situation of the, the police and uh, just enforcing the law without requiring a court's approval, um, I gather that this may be in part because of the experience uh, in 2010 that police are now wanting extra, you know, extra legal authority to uh, to crack down on protests and things. But I think 
Um, and I'm not a policing expert, so I, I really do realize that things are complicated when it comes to policing large events and large protests and large movements like this. Um, but we do, again, live in a rule of law society. And um, and just from my perspective, when uh, the, the, the police aren't choosing themselves to enforce the law and they're instead either uh, picking and choosing when to do it or they're just getting they're asking politicians for emergency powers or they're asking for injunction injunction relief to support them. This doesn't uh, this uh, I think stymies the mm-hmm. rule of law function that police can have. And, and I think it's, uh, this isn't, wasn't the original mission of the way that our state was supposed to be set up in this. Uh, so that, so there's that issue I think that's important. And then the, the other two issues that in terms of the picking and choosing and the, the blockade situation, uh, th- these are much more complicated, I think. And I think it's going to take a lot of time to work through. It's going to take a lot of time for me to work through um, what, what, what we can do or how we can, fix these sorts of enforcement problems. Well, and on that point uh, about complexity, and, and maybe this is a good place to sort of tie everything together. Uh, it, it feels like, you know, the last couple of weeks, whenever I've logged on Twitter, that Twitter is the place where nuance goes to die. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and, and and that's not to say that there aren't some very uh, thoughtful and good faith uh, perspectives that are being shared on Twitter. But I, I think one of the things that you've seen as well here is, uh, a very kind of oversimplification of the situation such that people expect you to either come down completely on the side of, uh, of the federal government or completely on the side of the protesters. And one of the things that we seem to have lost is that there's nothing inconsistent about er- earlier on about s- supporting uh, the freedom of peaceful assembly of, of the protesters and recognizing that they have a right for their views to be heard. But then, of course, to um, to, to oppose a peaceful protest turning into an illegal blockade or an illegal occupation. Uh, And even then, after the Emergencies Act has been invoked, to have concerns about the potential legality of that and the precedent that that's being set. Um, So I'm wondering if maybe as a final question, as we we think about all these things, you know, what are your reflections on how that culture has impacted um, our our discussion about this? Do Do you think we have a difficulty with these situations uh, charting a nuanced path and being able to recognize that certain positions will be consistent with one another or that people who might agree on, on one of those issues might disagree on another. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is something that I've seen erode over the course of the last uh, five or six or seven years now. Uh, this inability to uh, separate out certain issues from one another, uh, to separate out issues of legality from, the political underpinnings of that. And, and part of that is part of that um, unwillingness or an inability to separate out legal questions from other sorts of questions mm-hmm. is just, I think a good faith belief in legal realism. Um, an idea that we can't separate out specifically legal questions from the political and social context in which they arise. I, I mean, this is a fair point of view to have. I don't happen to share it, but I think it's, it's more than acceptable. Uh, and pro- maybe perhaps the majority opinion. So, and I think that's taken alone. Um, we can talk about that issue. But what does I think tend to happen, and this isn't the fault of legal realism or any particular theory, but it's I think it is uh, the fault of social media, is the rapid politicization and the rapid um, the the sort the enveloping of the political over everything, including. Mm-hmm 
questions of legality that we might have considered to be just sort of standalone questions before, including over social questions, including over entertainment, including over all virtually every aspect of um, of, of modern life as represented on social media is enveloped in political in politics, mm-hmm. whether of the of the sort of the partisan variety or uh, the ideological, more general ideological variety. And uh, this is very good in one sense because we have a lot of uh, social literacy, political literacy, but the problem becomes when um, the literacy is only skin deep and when uh, there's misinformation, uh, there's uh, the information is coming in at such a rapid pace that it's hard for people to sift through and develop coherent and consistent opinions about things. And so what we get is this sort of this mess of information, mm-hmm. misinformation, and genuine and uh, genuine information all mixed together. And so it's very hard for people to, in this environment, to separate out, okay, I may think one thing on this issue, another on that issue, another on that issue, because the, um, the, the impetus or the influence is just to develop a coherent worldview and ideology in order to process all this information. And so I think that, I mean, this is just my opinion. I'm, I'm, I have no ex- particular expertise on that point, but I just uh, I, I do think that when um, in these circumstances in these sort of uh, strenuous circumstances of modern life where this is the information ecosystem we live in, it's it's really understandable how people are going to develop opinions that um, are not are going to be unable to have nuance when it comes to these things. But I think we're worse off for it, obviously. And I think that that's, you know, if the Freedom Convoy saga shows us anything it's that uh, misinformation is absolutely dangerous and deadly to a rule of law uh, society it shows that um, we need to be able to separate out uh, what we think about certain protests on a political level from what the rules governing those protests should be Uh, these are things we have to learn to separate if we have any hope of living in in this society together and obviously here at the ready meet society a big part of what we're trying to do uh, in law schools and in the profession is to make sure that we're able to have these open conversations and to engage with these these points of nuance and to uh, engage with good faith uh, with those who uh, disagree with us um, on on some of these uh, issues and and I think you even see that within Runnymede there isn't unanimity here with with how to uh, respond to the the convoy and and how to I'll respond to everything that's that's come out of that, and so uh, it's it's been good, Mark, to have you back on to hear your take on all of this, and to hear about how this relates to a lot of the research that you've uh, done on understanding the rule of law as a concept and and how it relates to uh, the way that we we live in in our country and in our society. And so I want to thank you for taking the time to to be back on. We know you're uh, a busy man with uh, with lots to do, and and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have you back on again, at some point to update us on, on how your research is going and, and to discuss some of these other issues. So, well, that sounds great, Chris. And thanks again for uh, having me for this discussion. I don't, you know, we didn't, I don't know if we came up with any answers um, today, but uh, this is certainly something I'm, I'm thinking through and I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to discuss it and think through it with you today. Well, it's an ongoing dialogue, and I'm sure that people will continue to uh, to engage in that dialogue, and we here at Runnymede plan to continue to do so ourselves. So thanks again, Mark, and uh, we look forward to having you back on at some point. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society. 
a nonpartisan coalition of Canadian law students, lawyers, and scholars committed to constitutionalism, freedom, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more exciting interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.